when was the last time that you pondered, if ever, the architecture and layout of your church building or youth room? And does architecture and layout even matter? Should our spaces be purely utilitarian in nature, or should they serve an even greater purpose? Winston Churchill once said, first we shape our buildings, and then our buildings shape us. The fact is that space does speak, and space can shape us in ways that lead to our spiritual flourishing, or space can undermine our spiritual growth and development. Dr. Bill McAlpine has studied and written on the power of sacred space. Stay with us as Mark Penner and Duffy Robbins join me for an eye-opening conversation with Bill McAlpine about our churches and youth rooms on this episode of Youth Culture Matters. From the Center for Parent Youth Understanding, this is Youth Culture Matters. If you're a parent, youth worker, educator, counselor, grandparent, or anyone else who cares about kids, we're glad you've joined us for this practical, informative, and hope-filled podcast. This is a place where together we talk and think Christianly about the rapidly changing world of today's children, teens, and young adults. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Youth Culture Matters. I'm Walt Mueller here at CPYU. And uh, actually, I think we've had a podcast worth of of humor already just trying to get set up for this one uh, because I've got a couple of my friends on, uh, Duffy Robbins and Mark Penner. We'll get to them in a minute. Uh, But just trying to get all the tech working here, we've got some unusual situations. has been fun. So this will make for a good podcast. And the topic we're going to deal with today is a good one as well. Uh, just to introduce that a little bit, uh, we're going to talk today about an issue in our youth ministry culture, and actually in the larger ministry culture as well, that we don't really think about a whole lot. We want to prompt some thinking today. One of the things I've noticed in the Facebook groups, and, and a lot of us track with the Facebook groups for youth ministry, you know, download youth ministry, youthmen.org, and some of the others, is that we spend a lot of time uh, having conversations about things like, you know, teaching, what are you teaching, talk about staff relationships, problems and issues we have, we share games, we share programming ideas, we talk about mission trips, but we've seen a lot that's been happening on the Facebook groups increasingly where we talk about visual things in youth ministry and space issues, space aspects of youth ministry. What I'm talking about here is like, you know, hey, look at my logo. What do you think of my logo? Or does this T-shirt work? And then a lot of time is spent talking about youth rooms. What do you think of my design? What do you think about the paint colors? What do you think about the kind of furniture we have here or the electronics we have in the room? And so those those, uh, conversations there have gotten a few of us thinking about you know, is that really important? As we think about those things, you know, certainly we need to have space to meet in and we want to design our space well, but is there something deeper other than just style? Is there, could there possibly be some theological reflection that would be necessary and helpful to help us design spaces that really help us to accomplish what it is we're trying to do in our ministries with evangelism and discipleship? I've noticed as well a lot of images that have popped up where people are talking about their youth rooms where they'll show a youth ministry meeting and some of the places are incredibly impressive in terms of it's almost like a rock concert uh you know with the fog machine and the lighting and the staging and and all of those things and 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 i want to broach that a little bit as well i mean are those things neutral do we need to think more theologically about that so I've invited a couple of friends in. Uh, Duffy Robbins is here, and Duffy, everybody knows, teaches youth ministry at Grove City College, and uh, Duffy and I do some teaching together at Gordon-Conwell. We've been friends for a long time. Duffy and I have had these conversations, and then Marv Penner's joining us. Uh, Marv is actually in the northwest part of the country right now at uh, Multnomah University, and Marv, you are just explain what you're doing right now because we've got extra guests in the room because this is actually part of a classroom time for you. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm teaching a class up here. Uh, the topic of the class uh, this week is uh, adolescent faith formation. So what we're talking about on this podcast uh, is uh, is directly related to the topic of the class. 
Uh, I've got uh, eight master's level students in the room here, all of them full-time in ministry. Uh, they're uh, at the end of their uh, second year of this uh, master's level program uh, in youth ministry, headed up by uh, Dr. Rob Hildebrand, uh, who heads up the youth ministry program here at Multnomah. Uh, and uh, so we're, uh, we're having a great time, and uh, I'm grateful that the students will get the benefit of this uh, podcast firsthand. Uh, and hopefully they'll uh, they'll be able to bring some uh, some questions and some perspective uh, to the topic. All of them do their ministry in rooms somewhere, and so um, we're all in this conversation together. That's great. We're glad those folks are here, and they may be firing some questions as well a little bit later through Marv. So the guest we have, you know, as we've talked about these things amongst ourselves, we've tried to figure, you know, who has thought about these things more deeply? And Marv mentioned that he has a friend, Dr. Bill McGalpine, who has written a book uh, called Sacred Space for the Missional Church, subtitled Engaging Culture Through the Built Environment. Uh, Bill is an associate professor of practical theology at Ambrose University College in Calgary, Alberta, and he's joining us. Bill, thanks for coming on to talk about this. We know you've thought about this quite a bit. My pleasure, Walt. Thanks so much for the kind invitation. Well, okay, you heard a little bit of the introduction there. And some of my concern is, based on my own experience personally, about you know what has or has not gone on in my head as a practitioner in youth ministry, and then some of the things I'm observing, is that we're disconnecting uh, our practices, let's say, uh, our behaviors, let's say, in terms of space and architecture and design of our space. We're, we're divorcing that or separating that out from theology and belief. And in the beginning of your book, uh, you say this. Um, you would argue, say, I would argue um, that the church cannot thrive, let alone fulfill its mission in the 21st century, without a comprehensive understanding of the praxis component inherent in the theology and hermeneutic of the built environment. Talk about that a little bit, and, and then we'll jump into some some conversations uh, beyond some of those big words. <laughs> yeah, that was just to impress the two academics that passed my dissertation. Um, <laughs> but really, this whole topic of the theology of sacred space or the built environment is something that really quite ambushed me. I didn't, I didn't go into my doctoral program with this in my back pocket. But as I reflected back, I'd been a pastor for over 15 years, uh, for a few years with Marv, best two years of my life. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I'd been involved uh, both as a pastor and as a lay person in a number of building programs. Okay, now I come from the conservative evangelical background tradition. So typically, we look at our buildings through the lens of uh, fiscal feasibility and utilitarian, just how is this building going to function? How is it going to keep the rain off? Uh, is it going to allow us to do what we want to do? But basically, for all intents and purposes, it was an inert container. It did nothing. It said nothing. It meant nothing. And as I reflected on my years as pastor and then started to do some thinking uh, academically, and having conversations with people outside my tradition, particularly Roman Catholic, Episcopal, um, Orthodox, and so on, I came to realize that really, in, on a global scale, we as evangelicals are in a minority when it comes to seeing the significance of the built environment. Um, the idea, like it took me a while to get my head around the fact that there is a theology to the built environment. And what that said to me, Walt, was that for all intents and purposes, my spirituality, when it came to the built environment, was largely Gnostic, in the sense that the material world was really not that important. The most important thing is the spiritual. We want to save souls. And, and, and as an evangelical, we have a hard time taking our body seriously it's in general, and specifically how our body relates to and is impacted by the environments where we minister, live, worship, and have our being. So uh, I started to do some self-reflective analysis of where I had been as a pastor and 
you know, when I look back on it, there, there was one exception. It was the church where Marv and I served together, Baby Glen in Toronto. And my first week on the job there, our senior pastor, Arnie Reimer, took me into the sanctuary and he exegeted the sanctuary. There were theological statements inherent in that space. The positioning of the pulpit, for example, uh, the baptistry, those were not just um, functional access, egress, uh, aesthetics. They were theological statements. And up until that point, that was the only evangelical church that I had been in that even took it seriously. So that's where that's where my journey began and it continues and i'm still very much involved in reading and uh, i've been consulting with other churches and so on um so uh, a bit of a background walt as to where i got to where i i was now when it comes to when i use words like the hermeneutic of the built environment all that stuff that simply means that the built environment is uh, a statement that needs to be and will be interpreted. That's the hermeneutic of it. And whether we uh, want it or not, or realize it or not, people will interpret the vernacular of what our spaces are saying. It will impact them. They will make judgments on us as churches before they hear the preacher preach based on the environment that we have ask them to be immersed in so and it's it's a you know our catholic friends and others they've been doing this for 16 centuries they look at me kind of amused and say really bill you just you guys are just getting this now we've been doing it since the fourth century um so um it's it's changed a lot of how i think it's changed my philosophy and my theology um and it's impacted how I actually worship God mm. to a large degree. Yeah, I, and by the way, Duffy and Marv chime in. You know the rules here. There are no rules. Just go ahead and chime in whenever you want. Uh, but, I, you know, I did a thing here a couple of weeks ago uh, on a couple of those <coughs> Facebook groups where I asked the question, just said, hey, informal survey, this is to youth workers, what do you call the main room where your church gathers on Sunday mornings? Because I think names you know, names apply to this, right? Because in, in, implicit in a name is what we think the space is for. And I hear what you're saying about functionality there. So I said, what do you call the main room where your church gathers on Sunday mornings? What do you call the front of that room from which the teaching or preaching comes? Uh, thirdly, where do you preach or teach from? Name the spot in your youth space. And the final question was, uh, you know, make some comments on why those names have been chosen for those spaces. And what I heard, several dozen responses, uh, stage was a big one. I heard stage a lot. I heard platform a lot in terms of the place up front. Uh, I don't think anybody used the word chancel, which is old. And by the way, I grew up in one of those uh, conservative evangelical churches that was that was in the main line. So the architecture was a huge part of, uh, you know, of what we learned when we were growing up and what we experienced. So the word chancel, the word pulpit, those were familiar to me. Um, then for the, the main room, I heard worship center, auditorium. Only a couple called it a sanctuary. And when I asked, you know, about what is the thinking behind this, most people said, I have no clue. Um, you know, no defined reason, really. That's what anybody off the street would call it. And I did have one person push back and just say, uh, auditorium and stage suggest performance or entertainment. And they used that as a justification for why they called it, you know, something else like a, a, a you know, a pulpit or a, a chancel. Can you comment on that a bit, you know, and, and, maybe say, you know, with a lack of thought, what kind of thought do we need to begin to put into this? Yeah, that's, uh, thanks, Walt. When I think of the, the different terms that we attach to it, and, and I've heard other words, you know, church center, worship center, gathering place, um, and auditorium and stuff like that. Um, I think it could be argued that when we call a place, uh, a space, an auditorium, that 
what I, and this is maybe just a McAlpineism or whatnot, but what I, I read into that is the main function that's going to go on in that space is auditory. In other words, we want people to come and listen. So we will give you comfortable seating to keep your body out of the way. And in evangelical conservative churches, we're not even going to give you kneeling benches because, heck, we don't want you kneeling in our services. Holy cow, what do you think this is? So so we will have a, a you know, the auditorium says this is where we gather to listen. What I discovered, uh, I grew up in a Baptist church in Toronto where we called it the sanctuary. Can you believe it? A sanctuary. But that was the whole thing. From the back of the church right up to the baptistry, the whole thing was sanctuary. Discover that in a Roman Catholic church, a sanctuary is a very limited space that and often lay people don't go into the sanctuary. It's up at the very front. The part that we would call where everybody sits, they call the nave. The part that you come into the nave from is the narthex. So I always had to get used to all these different terminologies. And I, there are some who would say, you know, really, does it matter? And I guess in a sense it could be argued, maybe not, but I think it does say something about our understanding of that space. Uh, I know some people have, uh, I've had conversations with pastors who backed away from terms like sanctuary uh, or worship center because they want to believe that any place in that whole church building is a space where worship can happen. So what, to, to say it worship center, um, uh, is to say that it can only happen here in the center. and it, yeah, So um, I think people are starting to think about it. The whole issue, of course, uh, you know, and I've heard the, the similar conversations or comments about performance. Uh, we don't call it a stage, we call it a platform. Well, in our day and age, platforms got something to do with online technology. So what are you going to do with that? Um, so the the uh, the, the, the rationale behind the design of these gathering spaces, I think probably we need to think more carefully about what it is that we're actually calling it because the labels often reflect the thought behind it and even say the theology behind mm-hmm. it. Uh, let, me, uh, let me jump in there for a minute because I think that was uh, probably one of the parts of your book, Bill, that I appreciated the most. Uh, I, I grew up um, in a large Methodist church, and uh, it was Gothic in architecture. Big, huge, you know, pendulous chandeliers hung down, and and uh, we would sit in the balcony and calculate, you know, who would they hit if they fell, <laughs> and uh, you know, and then and, and and I remember the there was an area called the narthex. Um, which to me <laughs> kind of sounded like a metal band, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, at the Civic Center, Narthex, uh, two shows. But, but what I found helpful in reading this book, uh, well, especially the chapter in which you kind of reflect on, on the historical uh, rationale that led people to kind of think about the sanctuary the way they thought of, about it, is that, is that, even with all of the, you know, all the time I've been in ministry and, you know, like these other guys, you go to seminary and all that, I really was not aware of how much thought and reflection by my brothers and sisters in Christ over, you know, two millennia had gone into where, why these things were done the way they were done. I mean, it was, it was, first of all, just a, a vocabulary. It really, I mean, to, Think of the Rudloft, for example. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but I had to look that up uh, the first time you mentioned it. Uh, I'd never, I'd never, uh, you know, kind of figured that out. Uh, and then, and then I just, I found, a, I mean, nave and chancel and some of that. But, but it was really helpful to recognize that part of the problem here, I think, or part of the, part of the, the. Uh, just the reality here is that most of us have not given any or much thought to these things and are not aware that our brothers and sisters in Christ have done so. And, and so we haven't really availed ourselves of their reflection and the contributions of their reflection. I think that was a that was a, a real wake up call for me in your book. 
Oh, I appreciate that. Thanks, thanks, Duffy. Yeah, like it, it was a steep learning curve for me too to get my hand, my my mind around these different monikers or handles that we put on different parts of the sanctuary. But the part of what I mean, I had the same experience you described there. This was it was like uh, drawing the curtains back and understanding the significance and actually um, understanding that nothing in many of those ancient churches nothing was merely ornamental incidental or, or whatever they were all intentional a lot of you go back to the cathedrals they were built when the average person was illiterate so the only bible that they read literally was in their church building whether that be with frescoes and paintings but also the very design and structure, cruciform buildings. They're in the shape of a cross, that whole building. You enter into this building that's shaped like a cross, not because that's cute, but because that was a pivotal part of their theology. And the building reflected it as much as their sermons and homilies and sacraments. Mm. Yeah, even that that part of it, correct me if I'm wrong, but even the idea that the chancel area where the altar... Uh, that's that sort of space was at the east end of the building or at the east exactly. end of the of the yep. cross. But yep. Could you talk about just just I mean that'd be a good just a kind of a case study. Now, what was the rationale? What was the intention behind that? Yeah, it's a great question. Then, if you go back and look at the history of that, if you go back far enough, you'll understand what we'll understand is that in ancient temples. Um, the main entrance was uh, at the uh, always on the east, right? So, and that was so that when the sun rose, the sun would come in and shine through those main doors and land somewhere on an altar or a sacred uh, artifact that was right there. When Christianity came on the scene and saw this, um, this is a culture that they were immersed in. They said, okay, that's that's a pagan religion. We're going to do the exact opposite. So when you go to a cathedral in Europe, guess what direction your main doors are going to face? They're going to face west. So they took the building and turned it right around so that rather than coming in from the east, you come in from the west, and up at the east is where the main altar was going to be. So you have a north transept and a south transept, which forms the cross. But that's why, like, if you get lost in, in Europe and, and you're in a small European town, guarantee you somewhere there'll be a cathedral. You don't know which way is north. Find the cathedral because the main door will be west. That'll be, that'll be facing west. The altar will be up at the east. North is to the left, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the, the Christians did it not to make a positive statement, but to say this is who we're not. Hmm. Sounds kind of familiar. <laughs> But they were saying what the pagan religions did by having an eastern door, we're doing the opposite. Our main door is going to come in the opposite direction. That's one history of it. Yeah. Hey, this yeah. is good. We need, to, we need to take a break, and I do want to swing it around when we come back to uh, the larger picture or from the larger picture of, you know, the church building and get down a little bit more into the youth room and how we as youth workers can start to think about this because I do think it's important. We're chatting with Bill McAlpine about his book, Sacred Space for the Missional Church. We want to apply it to youth ministry. And an extra added bonus here is that Duffy's taken us off on a need to talk about how to get teenagers to pay attention in church uh, through his own confessions there. So We'll come back and uh, we'll pick up this on this discussion. We'll be right back. Stick with us. Here at CPYU, we want to help you help parents stay up to date on today's youth culture. One of our most popular resources is our monthly parent page. This four-page full-color resource offers parents a timely, practical look into current youth culture trends, along with resources to help them parent their children and teens Christianly in today's rapidly changing youth culture. If you're a youth worker who would like to get this monthly resource into the hands of your parents, you can see a sample parent page and learn more by visiting cpyuparentpage.com.
Well, welcome back, everybody, to Youth Culture Matters. We're having a conversation about space. We're going to we're talking about church and you know all the messages that are there explicitly or implicitly in the way we design our buildings and the way we design our meeting space, our worship space, and we're going to turn the conversation to youth rooms because that's that's a big part of you know uh, what we're doing in youth ministry. And I know a lot of you who are listening are spending a lot of time constructing your space. Uh, before before I turn it over to Marv, he's he's got a couple of questions here. I found this. I thought this was great. I think, and Bill, you mentioned this as well. I, I stumbled upon this in a couple of different places, but this great quote from Winston Churchill. So after the bombing and the House of Commons, the chamber of the House of Commons was destroyed, they talked, this is World War II, they were talking over in Britain about, you know, how do we rebuild? What do we rebuild? Do we do something new? And Churchill was adamant. Imagine that. Churchill was adamant. Churchill was adamant about building what they had had, the exact same thing, and he he wanted that. And there's this great quote on the importance of architecture attributed to him. He said, we shape our buildings, and afterwards our buildings shape us. That's powerful. And and by the way, after I heard that, I thought, so that's where McLuhan got, you know, first we shape our tools, and afterwards our tools shape us, Marshall McLuhan. But that— that is a powerful statement, and keep that in mind, everybody, because that's really at the at the core of what we're talking about here. Marv, did you have something you wanted to ask? Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, the first 15 minutes uh, have certainly been uh, stimulating and interesting. Had no idea about that east-west thing and uh, learning a new vocabulary here. But uh, from the perspective of a youth worker, uh, I'm going, wait a minute. Uh, I don't have the luxury uh, of, uh, of, of an architect who's going to design a theologically significant space. Um, my youth group meets uh, in the broom closet uh, behind the ladies' restroom in the basement of my church because that's the only space they're going to give me. Uh, or uh, my youth group meets in uh, the uh, Jones Memorial room where we're not allowed to have any food or drinks because the ladies quilting group meets tomorrow morning. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, my fear is uh, that youth workers are going to kind of feel a sense of helplessness. You know, I mean, uh, we're in rooms that are basically, you know, drywall, gyprock, whatever, uh, with fluorescent lights and a couple of folding tables and a stack of chairs. Um, you know, is, is there a way for us, for most of us, uh, even to have a place in making our spaces significant, are there are there sort of um, low investment, high return kinds of things uh, that we can do? I mean, I, I know very few youth workers who have the luxury of designing uh, a youth building or a youth space. Um, we get shoved wherever they think we need to go, and then we have to kind of make the best of it. So. That feels like the real world of youth ministry architecture to me, uh, and uh, I'd love to know where we go with that. Or is that well, just too pessimistic? No, no, it was wonderfully optimistic. It was, Mark. That was that was the best, most flowery descriptor I've heard in a long time. It was brilliant. I loved it. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's I'll why just, I'm here. It just kept going. It was me? great. If I'm in a fetal position, I mean, yeah, that was. <laughs> That was really inspiring. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was great, Mark. But hey, so, I'm looking I'm looking at eight youth workers in the room here, all going, yeah, I know what that's like. <laughs> yeah. Well, let let me say this, uh, Mark. Uh, that's not just a youth ministry phenomenon. Uh, you guys don't have the corner on that. That's that's the reality in a lot of a lot of churches. My home church in Calgary here, we're three years into our brand spanking new building. And we had to, we wrestled with whether or not that main space would be dedicated space or multifunctional space. And my, my you know, the, the argument is it should be dedicated space that the only thing that goes on in there is the preaching of the word, the sacraments uh, and all, all those kinds of things. The reality is we don't have money for that. You know, our, our building costs enough as it is, so we have to go to the multifunctional 
space. So how do you turn something that um, is going to be used for a number of different purposes by a number of different groups, different times? How do you make that have any sense? How do you create any sense of sacrality of the holy presence of God? Can we do that? And, you know, it, it, it comes back to, uh, you know, a statement. Uh, I, I had a good friend used to teach with me and he said, Bill, I think all this stuff you're talking about sacred space, you're blowing it out your ear because it doesn't matter where we worship, only that we worship. And I'm going to disagree with that. Um, and we can maybe get into that conversation a little later. But to, put, to talk to your question, Marv, I think it's a great question. And, and I think one of the things that, that, that I've been reflecting on in preparation for our conversation today is this. I don't think we give the youth of today enough credit for their ability and their desire to think seriously and theologically, even about things like sacred space. Yeah, I just, yeah. You know, we got to give these kids some airtime because they're saying stuff to us honking boomers at times that we need to be listening to. Um, I teach largely millennials, and so the millennials and high school kids that I have contact with, they're, they're, they're given every indication to me is that the where really is important. Um, we've got, and I think what, what I would say, Marv, is find out, I'd say to your youth workers, find out who in your youth group are the artists. Find uh, out who in your youth group have got a sense of color, of proportion, of material, of uh, lighting, huge, of all that kind of stuff. Well, some of them are going to, they're not going to be there yet, but some are. Um, and turn them loose. Give them part of a budget and say, here's some money. And what we want you to do each week is we want you to create, okay, this week, our focus is going to be on, let's say, let's just example, say meditation. Okay, what kind of environment? is going to be conducive to and enhance something along meditation. Okay, get your, I'd say youth leaders, um, get turn the artist loose. Um, and yeah, that's risky. Yeah. <laughs> you might not, but I, I think let's give the young people more credit than we have been willing to, I think, and say let them create a space because they're going to tell you what is meaningful to them? So, you know, and I, a second question I would say, Marv, is to what do you want your youth group to experience in that space? Right? Do you want them to uh, slow down? Do you want them to, is this going to be something you want them to learn? Um, do you want them to have community? Okay, so what what do you want to see take place? What do you want them to experience? And then the second question would be, so what kind of environment is that going to mean? And I don't think you need a, a Gothic cathedral to, to create an environment that causes awe, that generates awe. There's a lot, lot of ways you can do that, and a lot of ways that don't have to cost a lot of money. Bill, would you, would you talk to... So could you could you speak to maybe the opposite situation that Marv's t uh, just brought to us there? And let me let me give you a little background and maybe some explanation of what I'm thinking here. Hopefully, I can communicate this clearly because I'm finding, or I suspect, and in some of my conversations, I'm finding this that a lot of youth workers, when they get a budget, they are uh, sinking a lot of money into you know, sort of the stuff to, to, to create the sense in the room. And it's interesting to me what you're saying because a lot of it's not that stuff. What I'm seeing and hearing is a lot of technology and the creation of more of, of like a performance space. So is there, you know, just from your perspective there and thinking about the theology of that, even if this is just your personal opinion, you know, how would you advise a youth worker who's been given a hunk of money in a setting where they're seeing a lot of their peers uh, do this very thing, you know, with the staging, the lighting, the fog machines, things like that, 
And I, I do think there's a time and a place for that, obviously, in ministry. I'm, I'm giving you my own opinion here. But I think we are really, the, the scales have really tilted towards that. Uh, even to the point where I spoke at a church recently and I spoke in the youth room and I stood on a stage. I always ask, can I get off of there and be down on the floor? Uh, but technologically, they couldn't make that happen. But the youth yeah. room was not that big. They had seating there for like 30 people. But they had a full, you know, band set up up there and lighting, and they didn't turn the fog machines on for me. Um, but they had all this and this big sound system and everything, and I'm thinking 30 people. You know, there's theology in that, right? I, you know, and so there's, there's kind of some theology is going into that, whether it's conscious or unconscious, and there's something that's coming out of it in terms of what it's teaching. Do you know what I'm asking here? Or I, I'm, I'm wanting you to respond to that. You know, how do we let's let's put the brakes on for a minute, Bill? Give us some good advice on how to construct our space that would lead towards you know spiritual growth and the outcomes we want to see. Yeah, great. That's just a, just a great question, Walt. Um, I, I think number one for anybody involved in youth ministry, it, it is absolutely essential that you understand the culture of that particular group. Uh, the church that Marv and I served on together had a culture all of its own. You go five miles down the road to First Alliance Church, and you've got an entirely different youth group culture. So just because somebody has state-of-the-art technology, good stage, expensive equipment, good instruments and all that stuff uh, in Sacramento, nothing against Sacramento, but that's probably not going to work really well in Cornac, Saskatchewan. Um, in fact, I know it won't. <laughs> However, so, so I think number one is like understanding. Do we really understand our kids? Do you understand the kids? And secondly, and very importantly, what do you want to see happen in the lives of those kids? Um, that, I think those two questions are going to, to a large degree, uh, should impinge on or influence, inform the design of the spaces that we provide for them to happen. You know, um, I had a conversation with a guy named Scott Traeger, who was on staff at Willow Creek. Uh, and they were about to move into their new... 7,200 seat sanctuary from, or auditorium, from their small 4,500 seat, their original. And I asked him this question. I said, Scott, what do you want people to experience when they walk into that space? Without hesitation, he said, there are three things. Number one, we want them to slow down. This West Barrington, Illinois, the Chicago area, people live in a frenetic pace. So we want, when they walk into this space, we want them to slow down. Secondly, most importantly, we want them to have an encounter with God. And thirdly, we want them to experience genuine, authentic community. So my question to Scott was, are you saying to me that you believe that the built environment that you're putting together can affect all three? He said, absolutely. It's taken us seven years to design it. And that took into account lighting, the material, what was carpeted, what wasn't, and sight lines, not only to what's going on on the platform, but sight lines to those who are there with me. So I think when it comes to um, this kind of design, if, if, if we don't understand the culture and the, and the chemistry and the personality of our kids, then we, no matter what you do, you're going to probably do something wrong. So you start there. And then secondly, if you're not 100% clear, what is your mission? What's your vision for this group? What do you want? What are you trusting God to do in the lives of these kids? Then what kind of space is going to help us um, see that come to fruition? And, and I think for us to say, like I did for decades, well, it doesn't matter. Space doesn't matter. It absolutely does matter. And as often as not, how many times have churches put up buildings Youth groups have put out youth group youth rooms only to find that the room or the space mitigates against what they're trying to do or say. It's because we haven't given thought to it. We haven't seen that there is theology in the space and the environment. Uh, I have a question here from uh, one of the students um, who, uh, who, who may be addressing this. Uh, you're talking about 
your space should align with your mission um, uh, for your uh, for your ministry. What is it we're called to do, uh, and is our space intentionally pursuing that? So, uh, if in fact our approach to creating space has to do with trying to be as culturally relevant uh, as possible, you know, so that we do make it look like a club in there. Uh, because our kids are are you know comfortable in a in a in a club culture, um, does does that um, does that actually reinforce uh, you know the, the the notion that we're called to be you know in the world but not of the world um, is is that a is that a valid uh, reason um, you know if if we're about outreach uh, we're going to try to make our space as culturally compatible as possible. Uh, and, uh, and we can, we can rationalize that by saying, well, we want, we want kids who don't have a church background to be able to come in here. And it's one thing to talk about putting kids in awe of God. Uh, but it's another thing, uh, to create a space where, where students will be willing to come off the street and join us. Uh, how do you blend those two? Well, that's great. Great question. Um, uh, I think if, if our intention is to mimic or copy what the world has to offer, let, let's be honest, we suck at that. So let's not do yeah. that. So let's create something that is going to, yeah, it's going to be um, a, a place where people are comfortable to come into it. Um, and, you know, for, for a while, I think what, we, we bought into, and it makes me nervous, I think we bought into a bogus concept that any kind of religious symbol is going to be offensive to everybody. Well, yeah, like some people are going to be offended by the color of my socks, for crying out loud. Uh, but so, and the other, you know, the, other, the reality is the gospel is offensive. It's going to be offensive. So for us to create a safe place, I'd like someone to define, what do you mean a safe place? What makes a safe place? The gospel's not safe. The gospel radically revolutionized my life, and that's what it will do. It will turn it upside down. If you're looking for safety, that's a whole other issue. But I think, I think uh, the, the, the tension comes between which drummer are we walking to? You know, and, and there's concern that it, we're just mimicking culture well, if we're doing it just to be cool, then I, I don't think that's good enough reason. However, I, on the other side, like I, Howard Marshall said, the gospel has never been a cultural. The gospel was born into a culture and it's going to reflect. It's never meant to destroy or um, annihilate culture. The gospel is meant to redeem culture. And I like what John Wesley said, you know, you plunder the Egyptians. Uh, there's gold in our culture. There's, there's some unmitigated uh, distressing stuff as well. But gosh, I can find that in the church too. Um, so I think it's that, that finding that balance between uh, allowing culture to, to dictate in a, almost a, a dictatorial sense what we do and how we operate. And the other end of it is to just completely ignore culture and say that nothing good can come out of culture. And I think we need to be in a, willing to have conversation and listen to what's going to be meaningful to our, our kids. So um, I, I think having having your youth space like a club, like that's not going to reach everybody. I mean, some kids are going to be turned off. They don't like clubs. They don't go to clubs. Yeah. And their, parent, their parents who give offerings on Sunday are probably not going to, they might withdraw other offerings. Hey, before we, sorry, Bill, before, we, yeah, before sure. we hit a break, I just, I, two thoughts here uh, in response to that question. One would be, uh, and that was a great question, and, and I think that's a question a lot of people are asking, and I love that, you know, cultural relevance. I, the one thought was this, that when we bow uh, to cultural relevance, we will never be able to step back and say we're done designing this space. What'll happen is we're in a constant move to redesign, and I think that that can become mission one, where we're trying so hard to be relevant because you know you can't keep up with styles. Styles, yeah. there's planned obsolescence. 
in the world of style and and you know to to find a place to step back from that and find some relief would actually be a wonderful thing and i i almost believe that at times i know in my own life that if you try to cave to style this could be a great tool in the hand of the enemy to get us off of what our mission and task should be because we focus on that and so I, there's always that. But the other thing is you used, you talked about the drummer. I think you said which drummer you're going to walk to. And I think the gospel calls us to walk away from one drummer to walk with another. And so, you know, I'm just thinking about that related to space. So let's take a break. We're going to come back and uh, continue our conversation. Tens of thousands of kids have been trained by their parents and youth workers to think Christianly about music and media with our How to Use Your Head to Guard Your Heart 3D Guide to Making Wise Media Choices. This easy-to-use teaching tool needs to be in your youth ministry toolbox if you desire to teach your students to integrate their faith into all of life. Jesus calls us to follow Him, and that includes following Him into the six to nine hours a day of screen time that shape and mold the beliefs and behaviors of our kids. To learn more about our 3D Media Evaluation Guide and to order a copy for every member of your youth group, go to our website at cpyu.org. Teach your kids to engage with media to the glory of God. Well, let's continue this discussion. Duffy, you had a couple of things you wanted to, to ask or bring up. Yeah, yeah, actually... Uh, more than a couple. I mean, I, I'm just fascinated by this uh, topic, and it's provoking all kinds of thoughts. And, and so, Bill, I'm just going to uh, kind of throw out a, a veritable uh, merry-go-round of questions, and you just grab wherever you want to get on, okay? But I'll, I'll just throw out a few here. So one thing I'm thinking of is uh, I know uh, sometimes in, in youth ministry land, uh, we talk about using uh, the sanctuary for games. I mean, I, I might have, I might have myself uh, when I was a youth pastor, uh, you know, maybe done a finger blaster war in a sanctuary. Uh, I'm going to guess that you wouldn't be a big fan of that. Oh, but, but let's, what about, but what about, for example, the idea of using the chancel area, the altar area for, for, you know, some sort of sharing time or some sort of confession time uh so that, that's just one question in other words we've been talking about the youth room i'm talking i'm asking a question about this sanctuary space here's another question is uh is what about people who say uh and and while we were offline here uh chris went out to have a smoke uh, mar talked about this and said that uh you know what about what about the idea, Frank Viola in his book, Pagan Christianity, he wrote with George Barnum, talks about, you know, uh, th this is pretty much the, the I think the consensus is that the church is not a space. It's, a, you know, it's not a place. It's a people. And you address this uh, in, in the book, but uh, I haven't really heard you necessarily. We haven't asked you to, but you haven't had a chance yet to. I think to convincingly speak to that, because I, for example, you made a statement early in the book about the Missio Day, the mission of God, and and that we work so hard on trying to figure out how that we, you know, how we're to do this, that we forget who we are to be, that we are to be dispensers of God's grace, and that that sort of shapes some of these decisions uh, as well. Another question is, is it is it even appropriate for me as a youth pastor to go? Uh, I need to create with the same, well, certainly with intentionality, but am I supposed to kind of create another quote unquote sanctuary in the youth room or should there be a sanctuary where the entire congregation, you no, know, it kind of speaks to that, that uh, dichotomy between the youth, their sort of youth church and their big church. And, and, and maybe by trying to create this space that is, you know, it is kind of its own uh, sacred space that uh, the, maybe I'm actually duplicating something that, that should not uh, be duplicated, maybe. And then I'll just, the last one is, 
just the I think if I were to if I, I were to say what really impressed me about this whole discussion and what provoked me is just the intentionality. Because I think about, for example, you know, Walt talking about standing up on a stage and how artificial it feels to me to be speaking to a group of, you know, 50 students on a stage that's five feet above them. Um, and, and and it seems like it's it's we're, we're trying to sort of mimic. We're, we're trying to pretend we are this large uh, thing when we're not. And in fact, we don't need to be. Or how often I'm supposed to kind of preach from the scripture, but the room is dark. And so kids couldn't see the Bible if they had one, because they stopped bringing them because they can't read them in the dark. Uh, so it, it, there are tons of questions. Love the book. I'm going to stop there so we have time for you to respond to some of that stuff. Okay. Uh, wow, those are great questions. So my answer is uh, yes. <laughs> okay, Mark, how about you? <laughs> uh, great question. You know, the one, uh, let me address the one, Duff, you, you talked about, uh, you know, having a, a, a youth church room, a church space that is separate from the, the main uh, gathering place. Uh, I have a really good friend who uh, worked at a church uh, youth pastor for several years uh, where they actually had their own building and it was it was a magnificent building I mean they had all kinds of space but their gathering space was a performance center it really was you could have had a, a mini concert there and so they actually the youth did not meet at the 11 o'clock service with, with with the main event with their parents they went they just had their church service and in talking with my, my buddy, I think as he looks back on that, he's not convinced that that actually says the right thing and is the best thing. The rationale behind that kind of move like that, I, I understand. Because unfortunately, my generation, we've been indicted, rightly or wrongly, for making really boring gatherings. So, you know, kids would rather go watch paint dry than be in our worship gatherings. Well, I. I also think, though, that there is, there, there's, I'm intrigued with, and I've had conversations even this last month with people about the increase in the, the call for intergenerational stuff, including small groups, including uh, worship gatherings and, and whatnot. So um, I, I guess what I, what I would encourage, not just the youth workers, but um, certainly youth workers, but in conversation with the rest of church leadership, this seems to be a, a, a transgenerational conversation. I hope it's not just youth leaders that are concerned about our young people. You know, I, 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 I'm a senior citizen, and I'm milking the system for every discount I can get. But I love the young people in our church, and I want them to know they're loved. And maybe one of the ways that we're going to and I'm on the, our elders board, so one of the ways that we're going to make sure that they know that is they, they've got space that it can be their space. It's going to be slightly different, but we also want them together with us in the main event place. Um, so intergenerational stuff, I think, comes into the conversation when we're talking about having our own youth room. Um, um, shoot, I was going to say something else in there. What was one of the other questions, Duffy? Well, what about the way we use, I, there were about five or six in there, but what about the way we use the sanctuary space for right. a non, you know, because you did mention the multi-purpose thing, and 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 yeah. that that raises another kind of uh, part of the question, and, but then there's also where you really do have sanctuary space that, yeah. you know, like at an older church, but yeah. then you say, okay, we're going to go in there and do something. Yeah, yeah, I, it's, um, this came up in a conversation I had with a, a Roman Catholic priest who became a friend of mine. And in their church, their nave sanctuary is dedicated to sacraments and rites. So they won't even play secular music in there. It's not a place where they encourage people to fellowship and hang around and have communion. They have a community hall for that. And they've got the largest space dedicated to sacramental activity okay i'm not on that page i i don't know that that's going to be feasible for the for 
very many churches at all. Um, plus, I think you know, it's, it's, you know our our relationship with God has always got to be taken in association with the relationship with one another, and that has to go in those spaces. So, but the idea, for example, of using what is going to be this the Sunday morning gathering or the Sunday night Saturday night gathering as a youth room for futsal or um, uh, what you know what it called Dutch Blitz or something like that. So just raucous game. Uh, I know there are some people that would say that that is um, that's just not right. It shouldn't be used that. And and I I used to think that way, quite frankly. But in my old age, I'm starting to think. But maybe could we not say that the redemption story is not just about redeeming our souls. It's about redeeming play. It's about redeeming my whole life. It's about redeeming everything that I do. And that might mean playing around. And why not have a space that, yes, I can play a game in here on Friday night with the kids and know that I'm going to come back here and gather around the communion table and that not be a major speed bump. Um, uh, so, I, you know, I think I, I've i changed. And that that's I would say that's in the last five years or so. Mark? Um. No, I just to, to me the big takeaway from this conversation uh, is uh, is around the word intentionality. Um, and, you know, when when you talk about the uh, the history of architecture in the church, uh, the key word seems to be uh, intentional uh, or purposeful. Uh, and um, and my concern is uh, for for those of us who do youth ministry without any intentionality in terms of the of the atmosphere that we're that we're creating uh and uh, and i think that uh instead of allowing our space uh, to determine our mission uh we should uh, revisit what it is that we're trying to accomplish it's relational uh it's recreational uh it's educational uh it's all of those things uh and um and, and so for us to say in order to accomplish that mission What's the best way for me to leverage whatever space I have? Uh, what are some uh, simple things that we can do uh, to, uh, to, to create some intentionality around this? And then I think that sociologically, uh, those of us in youth ministry know that for adolescents, um, one of the big themes is uh, a place to belong. Uh, so is this a place that fosters uh, a sense of belonging? Uh, is this a place that uh, that students uh, can say, hey, this is this is our space uh, or this is my space that I come to? Uh, and uh, obviously the challenge is that we have multiple purposes, maybe more diverse purposes in youth ministry uh, than we do in big church. Um, and uh, and so we have to make one space work for multiple purposes. Uh, but that doesn't. Um, uh, that doesn't mean we can't be intentional about it. Uh, and, uh, and so to me, the big takeaway here is to go back, um, you know, for youth workers to walk into their youth space, look at it and say, what is this space communicating to a student who walks in the door? Um, to what extent is this space making it easy for us to achieve the outcomes that we're trying to achieve? Are there some simple things that we could do here uh, that would allow us to be more intentional uh, about uh, communicating um, with our space. Uh, and um, I, I hope that's what people are walking away with, uh, knowing how unique everybody's situation is. Can I just add to that? I think the other, the other big, big part, I mean, it's such a fundamental uh, piece of your book, but, but I think... Uh, just uh, overlooked too easily is that is that we are embodied people and that space matters so that so that when I'm thinking about intention I have to realize that space plays into my intention uh, I can't just think of space as simply neutral so thank you you've you've washed a lot of windows for us today so we can see through them <laughs> appreciate it they have been stained glass windows. Yeah, yeah. 
You know, uh, uh, just to follow up on that, I'm thinking, you know, from what you said, Marv, what you said, Duffy, that one of the questions that I think youth workers need to be intentional about asking is, how are we shaping and or, I, I hope not misshaping, because that's where, you know, change needs to take place, teens as they, or students as they walk out the door, because you're talking about drawing them in, but even as they walk out of the door, what are we, what's the message that we're sending, you know, them out with. So, um, you know, I think really be, being about that. And then there's one other thing, I just go back to, and this would serve as a, yeah, I mean, you guys know me, this is more of a kind of a pushback on our youth ministry world. I, I was thinking about the first youth ministry text that I'm aware of that was ever written, that big blue volume by Larry Richards called Youth Ministry. And there was a mm-hmm. mantra he had in there when I read that book, I'll never forget, he said, people not programs, people not programs, people right. not programs. Right. And I wonder if today we need to change it in this world that's so wrapped up in style, so wrapped up in pizzazz, so wrapped up in you know being culturally relevant, that we have to say people not props, people not props, people not props. And, you know, I, I because I think sometimes we lean on the wrong props. So, um you know, as we construct our space, which, as Bill has said, is so important, you know. But if that's true, Walt, that. I mean, if that's true, props, if space matters, props matter. Well, yeah. I know we're trying to wrap up. Well, here, programs but, but, but. do. Programs <laughs> do, too. Right. I mean, we yeah, all do yeah, programs, yeah. but ultimately well, I mean, I it's about the I'm people. Saying. Yeah. What's your top priority? That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. 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 And uh, well, you, you know, we, you and I have two weeks together coming up, so I know now what we'll be talking about for two weeks is going to be this is going to be a great discussion. So, good, Bill. What? Just I'm going to give you the last word here, and um, anything you want to say uh, to a final parting sentence or two to youth workers as they think about space because it is important to us, and we are, you know, we we're concerned about this. We want to do something with our space and do it well. No, thanks, Mark and Walt and Duffy. It's been a great conversation. Um, I think one of the things that I was going to emphasize, and it has been emphasized several times already, and that is a matter of of being intentional. Uh, So I'm not going to expand much more on that because it's been so eloquently addressed already. But sacred space that's going to be meaningful and effective does not just happen serendipitously it happens because it's been intended prayerfully considered and intended to happen the other thing that relates to that there are two things that the matter of well actually three actually four (laughs) um is uh longevity like when you design your space how long do you think this is going to last you know uh, marv and i were having a when we had the conversation when we're off the air here about the cathedrals you know, about they were very intentional, yet they're empty. You know what's interesting? I wish we had time, maybe for another conversation. How did the world respond when Notre Dame went up in flames? Mm-hmm. Hey, it's only bricks and mortar. What's the, what's the worry? Just a, just a building? Well, obviously, it was not a building. How many, how many uh, if, if our church building, well, one of our Alliance churches in Alberta burnt down. It went through, but it didn't make CBC News, you know. Why was that? Well, for one thing, it took over 200 years to build Notre Dame. Um, It's been there for 865 years. So the longevity of it is we're not going to build buildings like that anymore. And your youth room is probably going to only last one or two generations. Well, what's a generation? Used to be 25 years. According to the academic world, the third year student is a generation removed from the first year student. So it's about 18 to 24 months. So how long, so that means not only being intentional, but consider how long do you you want this space to function the way it is? And that means we need to be flexible. I think it came out of conversation earlier, um, being able to, um, stuff is not set in permanent concrete as it were. And by way of suggestion, like how do you make any space uh, have a sense of the sacred? 
Uh, first of all, I think we can learn a lot from the social sciences. We can learn a lot from, I've read tons from environmental psychologists and sociologists and architectural people. We need to listen to them, folks. Um, and they need to listen to us as theologians, whether you're a youth theologian or pastoral theologian, whatever. But one of the things, you know, we can learn a lot from designers of, for example, shopping malls. There's nothing strictly ornamental. They're intentional the way they design it. You pay more for a store that's on the right-hand side of an entrance than you do on the left. You pay more rent per square foot because they've done the psychology, the environmental psychology. They know that people behave certain ways in certain environments. I think for us in our youth rooms, our youth spaces, I would say make sure there are focal points. Whether or not that's a cross, it doesn't necessarily have to be a cross, but places that draw your attention. So one of the exercises I have students do is they have to go visit a church completely outside their tradition. And they, uh, one of the first questions they say, when you walk in that space, what grabs your attention and where does your, is your sight taken? You walk into a cathedral, your sight's going to be taken upward because architecturally it's designed with clerestory lighting and the lights up there, you're, you're going to naturally go up there. When you walk into the average youth room, what's going to be, what you, and I encourage youth workers, walk into your youth room as if you're an uninitiated kid and say, where's my attention drawn? Is, is there anything that draws my attention that intrigues me, that interests me? Is it a piece of art or is it a forest of music stands and mics and all that stuff what's going to address so focal points and then make it space for people to move around in easily so the days of pews are gone uh, do, you, do you have to have chairs all the time maybe have a uh, greek orthodox service that lasts for about two or three hours and they have no seating except for the agent and confirmed around so have a seat if i come visit but try that sometime be experimental. Be willing to try different uh, arrangements and configurations. Um, and I know that can wreak havoc on the janitorial team of your facilities, per se, but I, I think uh, people like predictability, but there is also room for surprise. So I don't know if that answers, if that gives you anything there. I think the intentionality, think of how long this is going to be appropriate, flexibility, have focal points. And the last thing I would say is this, whether we accept it or realize it or not, your space conveys a message. Make sure it's saying the same thing your mouth is. That's good. Well, thank you. Well, folks, Great. thanks uh, thanks to Duffy, thanks to Marv, thanks to Bill. Uh, we will, as we always do, uh, post on our homepage, cpyu.org, where you find Youth Culture Matters in the player for this episode. Beneath that, we'll have some resources listed for you, links to those you can click through uh, to those in access. And if you would, uh, subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have the opportunity, leave us a good review. That's helpful. So thanks so much, guys. And we'll be back again. Thank uh, you with the next episode of Youth Culture Matters. Thanks for joining us for Youth Culture Matters, a podcast from the Center for Parent Youth Understanding. If you'd like to learn more about today's youth culture, visit our website at cpyu.org. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, email us at podcast at cpyu.org.